Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday for a total of 10, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener supported. So your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week and see you all in the new year. You, you see unacclimated people for whom it is decidedly against their interest to deny disease and deny the very harsh, very um, risky, very fatal reality. It is against their interest to do so. And they do it anyways, because it becomes a sort of cultural signifier. It aligns them with powerful white enslavers. And it, it aligns them with a sort of status quo of white supremacy. It aligns them with this much larger social force. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you if you're listening to this and you're not a patron help support our work and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes including the entire back catalog at patreon.com slash death pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so I've got a great historian joining me today to talk about yellow fever and the political economy of disease and risk in 19th century New Orleans. My guest is Catherine Oliverius, who studies the intersection of slavery, capitalism, and disease, and teaches at Stanford. She's the author of the book Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom that came out uh, last April from Harvard Press. Catherine, welcome to Death Panel. It's so nice to have you on. I'm utterly delighted to be here. So your first book, which was awesome and I loved, Necropolis, came out uh, about a year ago this month, exactly, actually. And it's a project that you started long before COVID. It's clearly the culmination of, you know, over a decade of writing and even longer, I'm sure, in terms of research and the work that you've done in the archive. You know, you've been contemplating some of these themes that we're going to discuss today for a while now. And I had so much fun reading your book and I appreciate it and just want to foreground this for our listeners that in the very opening of your book, you have a very short author's note in which you state, quote, if there are any aspects of this story that feel contemporary, it's because they are. <laughs> and it's true. It's it's actually eerie to read this book at, at times, especially chapter five, which discusses some of the methods of sort of denying the reality of yellow fever in New Orleans, because the echoes of our current moment are not just sort of whispers here and there. It's really rather loud screaming. Um, <laughs> the way mm -hmm. that disease both fuels and then disrupts the sort of social and legal administrative state, shapes political economy. It's really 
just a wonderful text. And the precarious nature of this sort of setup, which was upheld by racism, both regular and scientific capitalism, and a culture of consensus that exposure to yellow fever came with a kind of capital. And the possibility of acclimation or immunity was really worth the risk of exposure. And so obviously there is a lot about this story that's really relevant to our current experiences. And of course, part of why I'm excited to talk to you about your book is that I think the lessons here that you lay out for the reader that play out, frankly, quite brutally over a century are really, really helpful for thinking through the current landscape, particularly the kind of premature unwinding of the COVID response and the push to the private market. But before we get into any like conversation about direct parallels to our moment or COVID or anything like that, I want to talk about the book itself. Can you start by talking about the project of the book, you know, what is unique about this moment in the 19th century in terms of infectious disease and yellow fever? Why New Orleans? And also, what is immunocapitalism and sort of how does this dynamic that you term in the book, immunocapitalism, really begin to emerge? Sure. So, you know, it's actually interesting. I went about, I, when, I, when I went into this project, I actually had no intention of writing about disease. I was going to write my PhD on something entirely different. Um, but when I actually got into the archives in New Orleans and was reading letters, and, you know, I was reading letters and diaries and doctor's books and tax rolls and things like this, mm -hmm. it was fascinating to me how much every single source was just covered in people's worries about disease and one disease in particular, which is yellow fever, um, which is a disease that, of course, is still, you know, it's prevalent in large parts of the world in West Africa and in South America today, but it is not a problem in the United States anymore. And I was sort of surprised to learn, of course, that um, this was the disease that scared people in the 19th century. Um, there still is no cure, but there wouldn't be a vaccine until the 20th century. Um, and very little about this disease was actually known. So when I you know, when I said this was born of the archive, it really was. You know, you read these letters from people and, you know, between business partners and they would say, you know, cotton selling at you know, X amount. Um, but then they would have five pages detailing their symptoms about, you know, about, you know, of the latest epidemic um, of yellow fever and talking talking about all of these just horrible things that were happening to them and their anxieties for themselves and of course for their families too about what would happen to them in this year's epidemic. And so I sort of came into this project um you know, my, my family has always joked that I'm a historical hypochondriac, um, that I, you know, I would, that it was, they, they thought I would be a doctor, um, you know, an actual doctor, not one of, you know, these academic doctors, um, a history doctor, but, um, but, and I, and I thought like, this is, there's something really here about the way that people conceive of themselves and conceive of the state also in relation to yellow fever. And so, you know, just sort of briefly on this too, I came to learn that Yellow fever came to New Orleans every summer, but every second or third summer, um, it would become epidemic, um, mm -hmm. and it could kill up to you know ten percent of the population each summer. Um, Staggering, this is, yeah, which is just a huge number of people. Um, and you know, I think I think about this you know regularly, and I try to explain this to students too. You know, imagine if ten percent of us died every summer, and so this disease would come, and totally upend the society um, of New Orleans every summer. Businesses would shut down. Um, people would flee if they had the means or if they were free. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, enslaved people and poor people could not leave at their, you know, at their own volition because they didn't have the money or the um, ability to. And so every summer, the, this, this city would be just gripped and engulfed by this. And what really struck me actually, too, though, was, you know, we have these epidemics which last for, you know, three to four months, generally starting in about June, perhaps July, ending um, around um, October with the first mosquito-killing frosts. 
And very quickly, the city would snap back into its sort of old ways. Um, businesses would reopen basically overnight. The streets would be filled with people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was just this it was com- a complete sort of vibe shift in the city. And you, so I you know, kept on thinking about this. You know, the sort of three guiding questions to this, which was you know. How did people in antebellum New Orleans, which is the nation's deadliest city by far, by far, mm-hmm. um, cope with living you know, amid this terrifying um, and incurable disease? And then the second sort of big question, which I think you know, something that you're also really interested in, too, which is, you know, why was yellow fever such a big problem here in the first place? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that, you know, you know, other cities like Charleston and even Philadelphia and New York, um, they would have occasional epidemics of yellow fever, um, which could be very destructive. Um, but we're talking, you know, by the 19th century, yellow fever is almost exclusively associated with New Orleans. New Orleans is the sort of epicenter of this epidemic, these these seasonal epidemics. So, you know, why did this city, this key node of American capitalism in the 19th century, do so little to combat the threat of epidemic disease, even as other U.S. cities launched significant and actually successful public health campaigns to reign in yellow fever? And the sort of third big question that I had, which is, you know, why did people who could have gone literally anywhere else why did they choose to come to a city with triple the national mortality average, a place where they effectively, you know, cut their life expectancies by 20 years? And also for a slave society um, where people were literally embodied capital, shouldn't epidemic disease, this mass killer of yellow fever, have been at the top of the concern list? Right. And so, you know, this, you know these, all these sort of questions are going around in my mind. And in some sense, you know, I still sort of ponder this last question. You know, why did people choose to come here? Um, and I have, you know, a lot of theories about this. but. Fundamentally, I came to realize that this disease wasn't just, um, you know, it, it, it didn't just visit and cause destruction and leave again. It actually became a part of the way the society operated. It became a sort of, it's not just background noise here. It's kind of dark matter. It's influencing everything in the way that the city operates in its political culture and its social culture, everything. And so this came, this sort of gave me the idea of amino capital and amino capitalism. And amino capital um, is the notion that you can use immunity, um, a survivor. Um, the only way you can gain immunity to this disease, in fact, is by surviving it. Um, there's Again, there's no vaccine until the 20th century. So people who fell sick and who they could, you know, who could then prove that they had fallen sick with yellow fever and survived, they would leverage their immunity to this very deadly disease um, to access higher realms of social, economic, and political power. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, you see people, um, you know, en masse, actually, this becomes a sort of social system of immunocapitalism, which is a system of class rule whereby the powerful immune elites basically use disease to discipline the population. Um, and they use this disease to extract wealth for themselves, um, to basically hinder competition in the form of new immigrants coming into the city who are rising through the economic and social ranks. Um, they use disease basically to really slow that process down. Um, and essentially, they use disease and the mass destruction and chaos that it causes to also increase economic, racial and social inequality. Mm -hmm. It's so clear how yellow fever is sort of an obsession of people who are living through this moment. Sort of broadly, the book in a way almost covers like 1805 to 1906 in a a Mm -hmm. sort of sense, you know, And, and the kind of staggering thing for me when I was reading it was thinking about how embedded this idea of well, you know, we're calling it immunity, but 
you know, at the time they were calling it acclimation or my Mm -hmm. favorite, like seasoning or Mm -hmm. creolization or, you know, sort of this idea of um, being exposed to yellow fever and then somehow being able to survive it in perpetuity. Like we didn't understand these things. We didn't understand how yellow fever was being transmitted. There were debates whether it was, you know, miasma or if it goes from person to person. We had no idea that mosquitoes were a disease vector. When Mm -hmm. we look back at it now and we say things like, oh, you know, like the epidemics usually started around the early summer. And then by the time the first frost killed off the mosquitoes, they would be gone. Like we understand it with this perspective of sort of knowing not only what the disease process looks like, but also that things like asymptomatic infections exist, that Mm -hmm. there are things Mm -hmm. such as disease vectors. And we understand looking back at it, obviously, the context of really what it means for the disease to end in October, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But these, what I think is important to remember and what I really appreciated and, and felt that you kind of foregrounded for the reader so well in the book is the fact that this is all solidified when we know nothing at all about yellow fever. That's so, exactly right. And I, and I think that that's really why even as a kind of COVID parallel, obviously the way that like governments respond and people respond to the disease is current to our moment, but also this kind of idea of like how sureness about the disease is sort of manufactured and reproduced throughout society and what economic and political ends that fantasy of of sort of knowing what's going on actually plays as a role in terms of not only setting this up as a as a social system, but also in continuing to justify and naturalize slavery for a hundred years as it's being sort of challenged by abolitionists and sort of saying, no, that this is this is a kind of biological um, proof that's that slavery is necessary in the South. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what the understanding of yellow fever even was during this period and how the class that did have acclimation, that did have immunity, began to sort of create a mythology around yellow fever in terms of like it giving access not only to a kind of citizenship, but really to a kind of entree into New Orleans culture and elite, as you're saying. Sure. So, you know, so what did people in the 19th century know about yellow fever, actually know about it? And the answer to that is not very much, um, (laughs) or at least not much more than really had been established, you know, right after the first huge outbreaks in the Caribbean um, in the 1650s, 1640s and 1650s. So until the 20th century, there was no cure. There was no evidence of disease transmission. Um, There was no conclusive evidence of disease transmission, I should say. There was no knowledge of the mosquito vector. Um, There was no consensus as to to whether the disease was contagious. Um, And by contagious, I mean spread contagious in the sense of the 19th century, I meant spread through human to human contact. Um, there was no consensus as to that or whether it was miasmatic. Um, that is, that it was caused by the sort of foul airs um, <laughs> that lingered about the city um, in this very hot city, you know, arising from organic matter decaying. Um, and again, there was no confirmation of the mosquito vector until the very end of the 19th century um, when it was discovered by Cuban doctors that mosquitoes, this one mosquito, in fact, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, um, spread this disease. And so very little was actually known about it. But what's also really striking is that in this kind of low information context, um, and I think we can certainly see parallels to COVID with this, in this low information context that was antebellum New Orleans or the greater Caribbean at this time, 
everyone, and I mean everyone, was a self-styled yellow fever expert. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody had their own theories about how this disease worked, um, the best ways to survive it, what an acclimation actually meant, um, the best, you know, the, the safest ways for people to go about actively um, get, contracting yellow fever and therefore acquiring immunity. And, you know, in this sort of like low information context, I think it's really interesting to see the theories that did prevail um, and the sort of mythologies that came about, some of which actually are sort of quite accurate mm-hmm. and some of which are very much um, in the vein of this sort of theorizing or mythologies and very useful mythologies to support the sort of existing racial status quo. So people did have a sense, as you say, of acclimation um, or creolization or seasoning. Um, this was a sort of an inspecific term. Um, they would use the term immunity um, occasionally, but acclimation was the kind of term of art of the time. Mm-hmm. And to be acclimated, that meant that you, um, you know, there were sort of differing definitions as to what that actually meant. So some doctors said to be acclimated, um, you had to have lived you know, in the tropics or the subtropics for six or seven years. Um, mm-hmm. And it, that didn't, it didn't necessarily require you having any sort of constitutional diseases of these spaces, like malaria or yellow fever. Right. That it was about like uh, getting used to the climate, literally yeah, acclimating exactly. as we would think about it. Yeah, exactly. So you know, getting used to the humidity in the heat and the sort of languid summers, et cetera. Um, and so many people subscribe to that viewpoint. Others said, no, 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 you have to survive a symptomatic case of yellow fever um, to be proven that, you know, to, if you're going to be acclimated. And there are, you know, and there are just every every single person has their own sort of personal definition of what exactly that looks like. Um, we know now, of course, that the only surefire way of you know, acquiring immunity was to actually get sick with yellow fever, not some not some generic fever otherwise. And that was another really big prevailing idea at the time that sort of any of the fevers um, of the South. So that could be, they would call them breakbone fever or intermittent fever or remittent fever or tertiary fever. Um, they saw all of these as fevers as sort of on a spectrum um, with yellow fever being the most serious end of that spectrum, but they're all sort of related. Um, and of course we know now that surviving malaria, for example, um, has no bearing on one's ability to survive yellow fever. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time there was sort of great definitional confusion about what fevers were um, and the utility that they had in terms of protecting um, you from other fevers. You know, there, you know, there's all sorts of sort of ideas, though, that did float around. So many people at the time, um, I would say the vast majority of people at the time, subscribed to the idea that if you were new to New Orleans, so if you were a new immigrant, um, either from northern states um, in the United States, or especially if you're poor and from Europe, so that is especially Ireland and the German states by the 1850s, um, you're highly susceptible to yellow fever. Um, if you were poor, if you were foreign born, if you were a drunk, um, these all of these things sort of increased your susceptibility to yellow fever. Um, and they spent a lot of time talking about, you know, this is a city that likes to drink, by the way, too. Um, right. And they spent a lot of time talking about how um, sobriety was the key, um, the key to health. And so, you know, if you were poor, foreign born, a drunk, sort of if your character was seen to be lowly, you were seen to be at special risk for yellow fever and actually not even at special risk for yellow fever, but actively that, you know, people would say that you basically actively invited death, right. um, that you had caused your own illness. And conversely to that, of course, means that, you know, survivors class themselves as kind of climatic champions. Right. Who chose to survive. Yeah, yeah they chose to survive. They're moral. <laughs> they're upstanding. Um, they're all, of, you know, they're all of these things. And, it's, you know, it's really interesting, of course, you know, when a rich man's wife dies of yellow fever, he, of course, does not blame her death on 
you know, being, you know, a sexual deviant, a as it was said, yeah. <laughs> or a drunk, you know, no, she died because it was God's will. It's, you know, this is highly class-based. Right. Um, and, you know, used to sort of justify, of course, um, this social, this highly stratified social order. And of course, also many theories that sort of, I, I think perhaps the most pernicious way that sort of yellow fever ideology, shall we say, came to influence the way that the society was structured was that there were, you know, dozens and hundreds of theories about why it was, um, as doctors and lay people alike claimed, um, this is these are white people, they claimed in the 19th century that all black people had a sort of special resistance to yellow fever. This was God given, <laughs> they said. Um, and they, in fact, they said that was, this was God given specifically so that black people would be employed in the most dangerous um, and environmentally exposed places in the deep south. Um, so on the wharfs, for example, on the levee, um, or on sugar plantations. Um, and they, they said basically that this God-given immunity was basically, um, they would call it a perfect immunity, um, I say in quotes. And they said that this was, um, God had given this special immunity to Black people specifically so that they would be enslaved in the Deep South. And the part where you talk about how this was even framed as like, this is God protecting the public health of yeah. white people. It was just yes. like, I had to put the book down for a second and go... <laughs> It's it's crazy. You know, the, the way that they they there are white people, um, politicians and doctors who and medical theorists at the time um, who they you know they will quite literally classify black people's immunity as literally you know humanitarian because it protected the health of whites, um, it protect, protecting them from basically labor in spaces that would kill them. <laughs> and literally no, I mean, I, <sighs> no amount of actual evidence um, and you know the evidence abounded. No. First of all, there is no such thing. We know this now. There is no such thing as hereditary immunity to yellow fever. Um, every single person has to individually, whether through vaccination or through survival, um, glean immunity for themselves. There's no such thing as hereditary immunity in which immunity is passed from mother to child um, in utero. It does not happen. Yeah. Um, but and, and at no amount of time, you know, so we know this now, but, you know, despite mountains of evidence to the contrary, um, that Black people did and could die from yellow fever, um, this myth persisted. Um, mm -hmm. It's 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 one of it's one of the sort of most vexing parts about sort of working in the history of slave societies and working with you know the letters of planters and enslavers is that they are, you know, they they basically hold the like they they know in fact they they worry every every summer um mm -hmm. about what an epidemic would do to um you know, due, due to their bottom line, because they saw enslaved people as embodied capital. This is their capital. This is their, this is, that. this is the way they saw it. Um, so, you know, they basically, the black people's risk was white people's reward um, in this society. And, you know, they worried about this and they would write letters about it constantly, but then publicly they would, they would always sort of maintain the party line that white people were more susceptible to yellow fever um, than black people. And this therefore justified the expansion and, and entrenchment of black slavery across the Deep South. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you talk about, which I really appreciated, is how this this myth in and of itself shaped the data that we have that we can actually look back on. Because in terms of like thinking through, OK, so you have this pervasive, you know, scientific racist <laughs> framework mm -hmm. that says that kind of naturalizes slavery and says that this like uh, immuno capital is like God given right to like the white people of the South to be able to leverage. Mm -hmm. Right. And you sort of trace how, you know, these anxieties about uh, exactly how much risk it was worth that like if someone had a proven record of having survived an infection that this affected 
prices and, you know, all this kind of sickening mm-hmm. stuff where you see the anxiety and the reality of black people do absolutely die of mm-hmm. yellow fever. And you have, like, for example, black doctors and people in the community, like, that they have written records and letters themselves, like, attesting to this. You have the owners and these, like, sick fucks and these doctors, like, they all know, <laughs> right? And yet, because of this mythology, if we actually sort of look at, like, death totals and things like that, people are just not actually saying XYZ person died of yellow fever. And so it has this kind of long effect in terms of, like, shaping when we say now what we understand about diseases based on the history of like responses to various epidemics, like obviously that is a framework that is completely shaped and guided by what we chose to count how and what we chose not to count back then as well. And I think that that's something that's often kind of left out of the conversation because we like to pretend that that data over time is a kind of truth that we can turn mm. to almost as like an accurate record. And I appreciated the way that you constantly throughout this book are emphasizing the way that the data that we have about yellow fever, whether that's when it starts in the year or Mm -hmm. who's susceptible to it, who dies from it, et cetera, that that is also really socially and structurally determined by these dominant uh, yellow Mm -hmm. fever ideologies. Totally. I mean, I I live in Silicon Valley where the sort of, you know, people worship the gospel of data and, you know, the sort of ability to to seek truth in numbers, I suppose. Um, And (laughs) my my goodness is like, this is the opposite. Um, This is, I mean, this is, this is probably the, this is one of the hardest parts actually of writing this book, which is that the data that we have um, is so corrupted. And this is, this is true across the racial and social spectrum too. So, you know, basically the, the entire society was basically determined to undercount all yellow fever deaths, but particularly those deaths of people in certain groups. So the biggest, most glaring problem, of course, is that I would say that, you know, Black deaths from yellow fever were undercounted to, you know, almost a conspiratorial, you know, people conspired to undercount Black deaths just to an abysmal level. And so the sort of way that this worked, of course, was that, you know, if you have this ideology that Black people cannot die from yellow fever, then, of course, sextons or church wardens or, you know, priests, they would not mark down that person as dying from yellow fever. So because, you know, if they can't die of yellow fever, then it would be ridiculous to put that in the register. Mm-hmm. So this means that we have epidemics, for example, you know, for in 1853, one of the worst epidemics, um, you know, 12,000 people died in New Orleans very quickly. And this is the course of three months. And, you know, I think that the city counted something like five or six black deaths that entire summer. Um, that's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, 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 Intentional, as it's, you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's 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 deeply intentional, and it's you know it's obviously untrue. Um, and then you have this problem, though, as a historian. So you say, well, okay, um, so I know that this is just you know patently ridiculous, but how can I reconstruct a more accurate past um, from what we do have? And it's really you know it's very tough. And so you have to then sort of go by the you know you, you have to lean more on the sources of individuals, people, and you know who are sort of perhaps less biased than. Official records. You've got to lean on, you know, their letters and their diaries, or you know, the, the their sort of musings about disease. And you've got to triangulate these with what we know about science um, and all manner of other sorts of sources, um, population roles, for example, all sorts of things to try to get a more accurate picture. But it's really tough. Um, mm-hmm. This is, and you know, and this is, you know, I, I I actually think I think historians have 
have been too comfortable leaning on the data that was produced by official sources in New Orleans. And, you know, this yeah. is, and by, by official sources, um, I mean, this is the sort of city council or the occasional <laughs> board of health that, yeah, you know, we was, should get into that yeah, next. Yeah, yeah, but like, <laughs> no, they, they don't, they like, you know, and their, their incentive of course is to downplay epidemics at every turn. They never want to declare um, that yellow fever is in town because it means that business is going to shut down. And so, you know, they're very much in the pocket of commerce. They have no interest in protecting the public health, public's health or really giving them, you know, offering them an accurate picture of the disease situation around them. They just have, that is not their, that is not how they envision public health. They envision public health as the health of the cotton, slavery, and sugar markets. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so the, the data that we do have is just fundamentally flawed. Um, and it's both, you know, it's the most challenging part of writing this book in many ways. It was also sort of the most interesting because it becomes this sort of, it, it, it allows you to sort of use your historical gut in this way. Um, and, you know, prove what you can prove, um, but also talk to the reader about like, you know, why do I think this is wrong? Um, and it allows you to kind of actually step back, which I, it's, 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 it's fun to sort of show your work a little bit actually as a historian yeah. and kind of invite the reader into it and to see like, this is the evidence we have and this is the limitations. Um, and here's what I think. And I'm going to show you why I think that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what sort of emerges, because as you're saying, it's, in the absence of this this data and this kind of deliberate ideology that resulted in a kind of historical record that's going to be difficult to present other ways, right? Like mm-hmm. it kind of creates and it forecloses on possibilities of like other ways of understanding and interpreting what happened in New Orleans during this period sure. of 100 years. And, and what's mm-hmm. also important to note is that this is a period um, when... Louisiana transitions into becoming a state. And so part of what is going on at the same time as this kind of hundred years of recurring, devastating yellow fever epidemics that essentially, you know, as we'll get into a little bit more, like the the response to the, the epidemics is to turn away from anything that could improve public health, like the way that uh, Philadelphia did in response to their yellow Mm -hmm. fever epidemics, Charleston, you know, you have these these deliberate decisions to kind of not invest in sanitation or not invest in um, things, even like a a centralized health department. But you also Mm -hmm. have this sort of coinciding with the attempt to set up an administrative state in Louisiana, coinciding with this being a huge addition of people and land to the United States, which was not that much land at the time. I mean, New Orleans instantly became what, like the ninth largest city in the U.S., And you you sort of have this dynamic of the people that were there before and the northern interlopers and then the quote unquote strangers who, you know, these are mostly like people who are coming to New Orleans to work, who are Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases kind of the most disposable population are like European immigrants from Ireland or Germany who, um, you know, are put to work building trenches when people see even the people that they own are like too valuable to send out to that work, right? And so in a way, what's beautiful about sort of the position you were put into is that you do show almost through the way that you articulate and show the reader how immunocapitalism plays out and and how this confers not only like a the the acclimation and survival of yellow fever confers not only like a status shift for white people, but that Black people who were, again, clearly vulnerable to yellow fever, Mm -hmm. that their immunocapital is something that also was part of white wealth and how white wealth grew. And that this became, I think you call it a, quote, 
heads I win, tails you lose proposition mm-hmm. where whites accrued mm-hmm. all the benefits resulting from black survival. And so you have this kind of way of actually showing that regardless of what was written down about the deaths, that the anxieties from these people who are building their wealth and power, whether they're doctors who come to New Orleans to try and use their physician expertise to get enough money to buy a sugar plantation, or there are people trying to make it in New Orleans and sort of be able to make money from this this complex system of extraction, which really almost has now by like the 1820s is really set up to expect this level of death. And the system of how the political economy of New Orleans works is kind of built on this as an expected part of the dynamic, that this death is built into the system in the way that we talk about, like, for example, Angle's work looking at social murder, that some of these kinds of losses are not only acceptable risk, but they're required for the system to function as it's designed. Totally. You know, it, it's inter- actually interesting. The sort of the definition of epidemic actually, you know, it's sort of a vague one, actually, that the, the, one that, the one that we use, which is that, you know, a, a disease is only epidemic when it sort of ticks up above what a community expects as normal. Yeah. Um, and what came to be normal in New Orleans was a very high amount of death. And just for a little bit of background here too, for, you know, I hope that everyone, you know, goes to New Orleans and enjoys it. It is not, you know, the capital of yellow fever anymore. It's, <laughs> you know, you, you shouldn't be worried about that. But, you know, this was, you know, it was founded in 1718 um, as a port at the very base of the Mississippi River. And it was designed essentially to be the sort of, the, you know, you need to have something there to basically handle all of the goods pouring down the Mississippi River out of the mid-continent. And it's built in a swamp. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is, the, it's the best site available, but it's built in a swamp while right at the levee, you know, it's about, you know, 15 feet above sea level. Most of the city sits just one foot above sea level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking, you know, this is really a city in a swamp. In many ways, it has no business being there. And, you know, this was a place actually that for most of the 18th century, um, people didn't want to go here. Like, you know, they had very little interest um, in going there because, you know, tobacco mildewed in the ground and molded, um, you know, it was just this, you know, hot and swampy place um, with little sort of economic incentive, um, with with few economic incentives, I should say. Um, But in the 1790s, these sort of two processes take place simultaneously. Um, That is the revolution in cotton and sugar. Um, These are sources of immense wealth, immense wealth um, for white individuals. And so New Orleans ended up basically um, capitalizing on the market gap left after the Haitian Revolution, which began in the 1790s. This is the world's largest um, sugar and coffee plantation um, society. And New Orleans capitalizes on this. And so people are pouring in here. And after the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the territory of the United States, but, you know, we're talking about the sort of the what the United States was most interested in really was in controlling New Orleans, um, because, of course, it you know gives you strategic access to the Mississippi River, um, but also to these, you know, these incredibly lucrative markets of cotton and sugar. And so you have people pouring in, um, just flooding in um, to New Orleans after 1803. Um, and at the same time, as you know, we have tens of thousands of people arriving each year. Um, these are white people who are opting to go there. Some of them are bringing enslaved people with them. But at the same time as this, um, this disease problem is becoming more obvious and it's growing, in fact, too. So the first year of American rule in 1804, something like one third of the American population died in New Orleans. This is the American. And this is this is, you know, it's not exactly like, you know, let's let's cheer for the Louisiana Purchase. It's like, you know, the, the, thing, the thing you're met with here is you're going to die. Like, that's just, you know, you know, Governor Claiborne, who was the first territorial governor of um, 
Orleans Parish or Orleans Territory. Um, this is Louisiana before it became a state in 1812. He got sick with yellow fever in 1804 and he survived, but his wife died. His daughter died. In fact, his wife, his second wife would die a few years later from yellow fever. And, you know, there's just, like, everyone is just dropping dead. And you see these letters, these dispatches between him and President Thomas Jefferson that are just like, I can't do my job. I can't, I, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, if everyone on the ground keeps on dying, you know, how can we actually build this sort of administrative state, this American administrative state? Um, you know, shift all of these people who are already here, all of these Creoles, that is sort of French and Spanish speaking, um, people who are already there who are subjects of colonial um, European imperial powers. Um, how do we gonna, how are we going to shift them to the sort of American standard? Um, what is it going to mean for this process of statehood? Is this going to slow us down if everyone here keeps on dying? And Louisiana does become a state in 1812, um, 1811, excuse me, um, but it sort of it does literally slow the wheels of government for you know yellow fever does um, where some offices like will just have nobody working in them uh, because everyone's right. died and they can't replace people they can't you know attract talent from the east coast or from the uh, northern states because people you know when you know when they're offered a job like hey you want to come and be the you know head of the land office in New Orleans they're like hell no like I don't want to do that like I don't want to die this is you know this is ridiculous and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna risk my life for a government job. I'll risk my life for the potential of wealth in sugar and slavery and cotton, but I'm motivated, you know, only in basically being a private citizen. I don't, I don't want to do this and all of this sort of the tricky work of building a state. I don't, you know, that's not my, I'm not going to risk my life for that. I'm not going to risk the, the lives of my, you know, family too. But as you say, too, what's, what's sort of amazing is that by throughout the 18, um, you know, the sort of first decades of the 19th century, this pattern has set in where, Every other summer, this, you know, the epidemics descend, killing, you know, huge portions of the population and especially certain groups. This, you know, and of course, as you said, it was, you know, this is called the stranger's disease disease that kills strangers, people who are new to this place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by the 1820s, this a very high level of death was just accepted as normal and that this was, you know, this was New Orleans was going to rise um, sort of inevitably because, you know, you have to have this city um, at the base of the Mississippi. You need to have some kind of processing depot for all of the cotton and sugar pouring out of the Mississippi Valley. So New Orleans is going to it's always going to be you know important. And you have this sort of attitude of the political class by the 1820s, 1830s, where they just say, you know, nobody's asking you to come here. You don't have to come here. But if you come here, you've got to accept that Yellow fever is, an, you know, this is a problem every summer and it is your duty to get acclimated. That is your personal responsibility. Um, it, it is not our job to help you in that. There is no such thing as public health here. It is our job, as we see it, to help you make money once you pass the Yellow Fever Rubicon. Mm -hmm. you know, that is, but that is the first step. And that is, you know, so basically their attitude is, you know, public health is private acclimation. Um, the state bore no responsibility for the health of its inhabitants. And I think what's what's really, you know, staggering is you start to see how then that that attitude and ideology becomes then literalized in things like insurance assessments, yeah. like life insurance yeah. or the ways that, for example, northern life insurance companies who are maybe, say, based like in Massachusetts or something are struggling to to figure out even how to define and quantify acclimation and then right. just decide to wholesale refuse to ensure anyone who's not got proof that they're acclimated. And the ways that this also, I think, begins to become um, a signifier that stands in for creditworthiness, that stands in for business uh, opportunity, right? The idea is literally like if someone is unacclimated and you hire them for a job, 
they might be dead by August. So like, what's the Mm -hmm. point in training them? What's the point in uh, having them as a business partner in loaning money to them, right? Because this is built into the fabric of how New Orleans is operating to essentially assume that people who are there for their first to sixth summer are people who are unacclimated and therefore untrustworthy in order to sort of be you know, these economically valued citizens. And and part of it also is literalized in terms of who can vote and like what time mm-hmm. of year the voting is happening too. So what you really see and, and what I think is kind of frustrating is like the uh, the clear and sort of present line that you carry through that like throughout this whole time, right? Like New Orleans is, is yes, uniquely predisposed to mosquito-borne diseases. You have sugar plantations. There's a lot of fresh water on sugar plantations. There's a lot of standing water. You know, there is a lack of sanitation. You sort of have this environment where, you know, looking back at it from a, a, a contemporary perspective, it's like, oh, well, there's so many opportunities where public health interventions could have been made. But even if you're gonna like look back at it from the perspective of prior to this even being a problem. If we're talking about like things that Philadelphia was doing, like before the 1800s even, right? (laughs) Like that, that were obvious at the time that could have been interventions. This was like a choice, but the whole framework of it and the way that everyone sort of engaged with yellow fever was as if nothing could be done. And as you're saying, like really the, the choice is to come there at all and to sort of earn your worth through taking on that personal risk of acclimation and that that was really kind of worth it. But that there was beyond that, as you're saying, no obligation um, in terms of public health, no theory of society in terms of interdependence. I mean, people would discourage romantic relationships between acclimated and non-acclimated people because it's like, well, why fall in love with this person and have kids with them if they could be dead by October? And, And I think what's sort of really interesting to watch play out over the course of the book is, you know, repeatedly, every three years almost, um, but particularly there are several really bad epidemic years, like I'm thinking about, in particularly like by the 1850s, you have Mm -hmm. so much evidence, even anecdotal superstitious evidence as to like how this phenomena of yellow fever actually like can be socially determined and structurally determined and perpetuated. And yet you have this commitment to the kind of ideology and the dignity of risk and the idea that like part of what was valuable in, in society in New Orleans was to um, be willing to put yourself at risk for capital in such a way. Totally. And I, I just say that, that, you know, yellow fever, this is a really risky disease in the first place. If you fell sick with yellow fever in the 19th century, you had a 50% chance of dying. That is extraordinary. That's brutally, a huge, brutally dying. It's, it's brutal, you know, dying amid convulsions. You would, you know, your organs collapse, you bleed through your external orifices, you end up vomiting this black blood at the very end, which is basically coagulated blood in your stomach. And it's all um, caused by your own immune system too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exactly. This is, this is basically your own immune system sort of fighting back against you. Um, as, or, you know, it's it, yellow fever basically weaponizes our immune system, immune systems against us. And so this is this is a, it's a miserable way to die. It's a highly risky disease. This is you know right up there with you know the, you know taking on this risk. This is a serious matter. And for all the things that you just said too, I you know one of the things I think one of my favorite sources to work with actually are the these sort of internal memos um, of insurance companies, mm-hmm. um, all of which are seeking to try to create an actuarial definition for what acclimation is. 
Um, and so these are basically, you know, these are clerks and insurance presidents who are writing from, you know, Chile, Hartford or from um, New York or from Boston who are, you know, they're basically flummoxed at how to apply this kind of scientific actuarial standard to a society which interprets acclimation as both a biological and a cultural marker too, as you say, one that, you know, this is, this is not, you know, it's, this is that with acclimation, you are bestowed with, you know, cultural, economic, but also social capital in the way that this aligns very closely with how Pierre Bourdieu thought about um, the sort of forms of capital and the ways that capital worked in various societies. But one of the problems that these insurers face is that, you know, so you become very sick for the most part um, if you contract yellow fever. You might be asymptomatic, you might be, but most people got got quite sick. Um, But survivors are not left with physical scars. Mm -hmm. So you cannot prove definitively, um, you know, 100% that what you survived was actually yellow fever and not some other kind of disease. And so this is actually, this creates a structural problem too. So you basically are performing the fact that you are acclimated mm-hmm. and you're, you're, and you're kind of like, you know, making it till you're breaking it in some sense. You just, you just sort of, you act the part, um, you, you know, say I'm acclimated now and you just hope for the best. You hope that what you survived was yellow fever actually. And for the most part, people, you know, are, it's, you know, you, most people would get, become very sick. And, you know, if you fell sick during an epidemic summer, you know, chances are it probably was yellow fever, but everyone always maintained the sort of sneaking little bit of doubt in their mind that, you know, oh goodness, could I be wrong? Uh, You know, could I be wrong about this? Am I, um, you know, this thing upon which I base so much of my, my identity and, you know, so much of my sort of position in the society is based, am I wrong about this? Um, or am I wrong about my child, for example, too? Am I wrong about my wife, my husband, um, my business partner? Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, it's it's really, you know, the, the sort of the insurance question too is this place is incredibly risky. You know, it's, I mean, all cities are risky in the 19th century, honestly. Um, right. You know, every city from, you know, everywhere. And, and you know, consumption which is pulmonary tuberculosis, it killed far and away the most Americans in the 19th century. I think 20% of Americans died from pulmonary tuberculosis. And, you know, this killed only a fraction of that. But in New Orleans, this was this was the major killer. And it was, it was, it killed people, otherwise healthy people, so quickly and suddenly um, without any warning that it basically is uninsurable. It was, this is what insurers, you know, come to the conclusion of. They're, you know, they're working hard to kind of come up with these play specific rates for the deep South saying like, okay, well, if we charge them more here, maybe we can offset the risk in this way. We can kind of hedge, but it's just no insurance company. In fact, was really ever able to make the deep South profitable because people just died too quickly here. Um, and they died from yellow fever. And so, and because there was just no standard definition of acclimation, you know, they were basically screwed, um, in terms of, you know, creating a kind of standard, um, I say in quotes, you know, scientific actuarial model mm-hmm. um, or, you know, what life expectancies were in the Deep South. This Yale Fever just threw everything into chaos. So I think what's really kind of beautiful about this, too, is that what we're talking about now is this kind of this moment, right, where you have a, a highly risky system set up in New Orleans. And as this becomes sort of valuable to the United States and there's an attempt by places outside of New Orleans to kind of reckon with the system. Obviously, people are sort of saying like, well, you know, why is New Orleans uh, so bad? And there's a kind of reaction to it and a kind of doubling down on 
the embrace of this sort of system of immunocapitalism, the system of acclimation and personal responsibility to take on that risk, to be a part of New Orleans society, sort of almost reacting to this Northern culture, like interloping in, in the sort of mm-hmm. way that the South wants to self govern. And I think that that what's really also interesting is that you show that this kind of coincides with the development and growth of like the medical profession within New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. you write, in 1809, New Orleans counted 18 doctors and surgeons, five apothecaries, and two dentists. By 1823, 53 registered physicians practiced medicine in New Orleans, many of them which were refugees from St. Dominique. Um, So it's like people who actually were coming from the Caribbean who had experience treating yellow fever, which I really appreciated the way that you framed how this kind of increases the capital that doctors have in general, because this is not Mm -hmm. a point where there's like a lot of medical expertise on yellow (laughs) fever. People are not learning about it in med school. Med school is pretty informal (laughs) anyways. um, And we don't have treatment. And there aren't really any medical ethics, too. Right, exactly. (laughs) And and so you see kind of like in this landscape of weaponized uh, disease, of disease as political material, and of this kind of naturalization of, um, you know, this extractive uh, racial capitalist slave society, you have also the kind of way that medical expertise begins to factor into this and also becomes like a very important and difficult to measure economy within New Orleans. And you talk about Mm -hmm. how by 1858, quote, there were 217 licensed doctors working in private practice, 117 druggists handling medications, and hundreds of what were called steam doctors who were advocating homeopathic remedies. And you talk about also how expensive it is and and sort of how... (laughs) Sometimes poor people, the the people who would be called strangers by New Orleans natives or people who were acclimated, you know, that they were telling people, okay, save up money for when you get sick, save up a month's of wages. There were things, you, oh my God, there's this yeah. one brutal quote you have from the newspaper that says, like, if you're a poor person in New Orleans who doesn't have a lot of connections, who has no friends and family, save yourself a horrible death by buying yourself some gin and putting rat poison in it and going out into the country to have a nice death. Like this is this is really this is a duty. Brutal stuff. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. a duty. And and doctors sort of emerge um, both as a way, I think, to kind of mitigate what y- you highlighted, which is this constant underlying fear, because they're really Unlike smallpox, where you have kind of these fairly obvious signs of having had the infection, mm-hmm. you know, there there is no way to prove and people do kind of second guess their own immunity because not everyone has those sort of typical black vomit symptoms. Not everyone um, was sure. And so you have this really kind of like intensely stratified system of medical expertise that begins to be reproduced and also helps contribute to some of these like data uh, problems that we've been talking about, where we have really unreliable representation of of how effective treatment were and, and how many patients doctors were seeing, because part of it is also salesmanship. And this became a yeah. great way for physicians to build class power and wealth. Yeah, I call this the position to plant your pipeline in the book, yeah. in fact, too, because you have all these. Do- so in this this begins, you know, really at the beginning of the 19th century, you have these doctors who come to New Orleans because they're essentially sort of medical entrepreneurs. Um, and of course, I should say, you know, there are plenty of doctors who, you know, performed their jobs with, you know, integrity and they saw, you know, they wanted to help people um, in their, you know, sickliest, worst moments. But there's no denying the fact that 
medicine was a really good business decision in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, this is a place where doctors could be could accumulate wealth quite quickly because also like unlike a great many other businesses, um, health and medicine was always a cash business. You were um, you you paid in cash for medical services, and so they would accumulate cash very quickly. And almost to a man, um, these doctors who, you know, sort of started out perhaps sort of lower middle class um, and they would come and they would acquire capital and they would almost always invest this money in enslaved people and in plantations. Mm-hmm. And so you have and, and, you know, and uh, it, there are doctors everywhere. Everybody calls themselves a doctor. This is this is a kind of, you know, in the way that everyone's a colonel to, you know, colonel this, this you know, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> they, they they love giving themselves titles, but it, it is absolutely, uh, you know, this is the incentives here are to, you know, basically, I, I, I would go so far as to say, I think that, you know, doctors in some sense, they, they were perversely incentivized to not um, sort of contribute to the public's health mm-hmm. um, and to sort of, to, in, to ensure that, you know, the good times um, for them, which meant, you know, epidemic times for everybody else kept on rolling because during epidemics, they could charge um, what they called yellow fever rates. That's basically triple what they could charge the rest of the year. And so this is, you know, I, I used to example after example of this, of people who come to New Orleans, who, you know, they're being told by, you know, family and friends already there, you know, save up $50, $50 save up $100 for your inevitable medical expenses. And you know, it's going to happen and you need to have this money and you need to also basically have your sort of like health plan in place. So mm-hmm. if you get sick, who are, you know, are you going to hire these black nurses? Are you going to hire this doctor, Dr. Kerr? How about Dr. Merlenberger? Who are you going to go for? Which hospital are you going, you know, if as a last resort, which hospital will you um, go to, and nobody wanted to go to the hospital, um, mm-hmm. especially the charity hospital, um, which was, you know, a point of absolute terror for people because, you know, the, the you know, descriptions of what it was like in this hospital are enough to chill my, you know, chill my blood. It's just, oh, it's, it, this is the place that, you know, people thought like, you don't go there to get better. You go there to die yeah, um, and you will die a horrible death. And, and so, but it's not also, it's, it's, it wasn't just the sort of cost of medicine. And by the way, again, none of these medicines worked. Yeah. Um, you know, these are, they're, they're, they're basically all alcohol based in the first place. All of these sort of, you know, Radway's remedy relief or saprocillus syrup or all of these, these sort of patent medicines, they're, you know, these are, these are not going to be, you know, so, curing your yellow fever. Probably the, you know, the best thing for you was, you know, sort of TLC, um, being, you know, when, you know, to be, you know, kept warm, um, not overheated, things like this kept, um, dry, you know, things like this, but, Fundamentally, um, you know, these medicines didn't work, but they were extremely expensive. So, you know, but all these medicines and the doctor's care and the nurse's care, you know, this is this is only the start, really, in many ways of a whole slew of different expenses that would come up. You know, if you were living in a boarding house, for example, um, you know, boarding houses would charge you an extra tenancy um, if you were sick in their house. So they would they would charge you extra rent Mm -hmm. um, if you were sick. And you know, many there were sort of convalescent hospitals, but those were expensive too. And if you died, your estate, um, whatever that would be, still paid the doctor and the nurse. And then, you know, funerals were expensive. You know, mourning clothes was expensive, were very expensive. Cemetery plots were expensive. All of this, this entire industry of sort of health and death, um, was certainly, you know, this is this is many, many millions of dollars annually. This, I would say, I, you know, I, I think it's basically the third industry in New Orleans after um, sugar and cotton. That yeah. this, is, this is, you know, this is where if you want, you know, sort of entrepreneurs of a medical bench that is doctors, you can make a, you can make a, heck of, you know, a heck of a lot of money mm-hmm. very quickly. Yeah. And do so in a way that, you know, that do so in a way that, um, you know, it's, you know, 
epidemics, they happen, you know, it's, it's a great business model um, in a really macabre sense because epidemics come every summer. And so long as you're immune yourself, you can basically exploit people in their most vulnerable moments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think this is something that really, you know, it's 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 really important to think about also sort of what's happening in, in medicine at this time. This is a moment where, you know, you have in the 19th century, you have things like the debate over the rest care versus the work care, whether or not mm-hmm. convalescence was actually beneficial to patients or if more things like heroic medicine, when we think of yeah. like the kind of aggressive um, interventions that were often justified with like higher prices by being like dramatic in some way. They were kind of performative, whether that's bleeding or um, enemas that, you know, like, yeah. basically oh. <laughs> mercury enemas and coffee yeah. and opiate. You know, it's like this is a moment in medicine where medical care is pretty brutal at baseline. And there's no, as you were saying, no sort of standards, no consistency. And it's really that people approach medicine with this expressly sort of entrepreneurial attitude in a way that we don't talk about it so much anymore, where it's like, I am going here because this is like an exploitable situation in in a lot of ways. And it's also, Mm -hmm. you know, a sort of chance to, I think, solidify the authority of, of physicians within New Orleans society during this period. And, and I think what's really kind of interesting and important to remember, too, is that so like all of these kind of obligations, right, like the the care and the treatment, this is maybe costing like 100 to 100 plus dollars for people. This is like a month's wages. And again, like you're supposed to submit yourself to this infection, which has like a 50 percent fatality rate. Um, the treatments themselves might kill you. I mean, you have yeah. comments from physicians who are wondering if some of the treatments were just as deadly yeah. as the infection. Like, did more yeah. soldiers die from the mercury we gave them to treat this than from the yellow fever itself? There's even uh, this one part where you talk about how there starts to become like a kind of standard of when you stop giving someone mercury because they're obviously yeah. showing signs of mercury poisoning. <laughs> and, you know, this is this is an important part of it, too, which is like, what are the kind of criteria for what is a yellow fever case is also completely yeah. in flux during this period. And folks might be wondering, so like, where is the public health department? Where is the kind of central administrative authority and where does this data that we're talking about come from? And I think what's really wonderful about what you show in the book is how this kind of lack of a centralized data authority also influences like the shape and the picture of the yellow fever story Mm -hmm. that we get because it's coming either through churches, through physicians, through Mm -hmm. kind of dispersed a kind of decentralized system, but there's also no one who's ever really responsible for taking stock of the whole picture. Um, And there's actually almost like a resistance to setting this up that becomes um, not just sort of like subtextual, but incredibly deliberate and overt. And you talk about this um, in particular in chapter five, which I really Mm like this kind of disease denialism that becomes also part of the mythology beyond the the denialism of saying like black people are you know categorically immune and sort of what that <laughs> leads to this is a, a sort of larger and slightly different disease denialism that that basically kind of turned away from taking like a broad picture of this um intentionally and kind of maintain that and 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 you see this in in all sorts of like ways that the doctors branded themselves to particularly mm-hmm. you know physicians who were 
uh, ascribing to like filth is health models or who became kind of like anti um, quarantine skeptics and people who really kind of put a lot of their like intellectual labor into discouraging any kind of coordinated uh, centralized response that might try and deal with this at a population level and not just at the level of like the individual as a consumer of um, any health goods in the market available to them. You've had the nail sort of precisely on the head with this. And so, you know, what I was saying a second ago about how, you know, there's all this sort of individual incentive for doctors to, you know, they they come to New Orleans because they're going to acquire this capital quickly to invest in a plantation. They also gain a lot of political power in this time period, too, you know, in, in the early 19th century. And so, you know, you have city councilors who are doctors, you have mayors who are doctors, things like this. Um, they help they hold a, a great deal of political power. And this is, I think the sort of most striking and uh, like difficult, uh, vexing thing to sort of get your head around to about New Orleans, which is that, you know, other cities in this time period in the early 19th century, they're essentially consolidating their power um, over building administrative states. And so they're sort of showing, they're increasingly um, taking power over, you know, they're sort of increasingly operating um, educational institutions and asylum and things like this. So, and, you know, public health is considered to be increasingly the sort of purview of individual municipalities, if not states. And so you see this, you know, from Boston to Charleston, et cetera. And you are absolutely right that there is not just a sort of apathy, but almost like really a resistance actually mm-hmm. to installing any kind of health infrastructure, um, whose job it is apolitical, uh, and, and sort of, you know, an apolitical body whose job it is to handle disease, perhaps stem it at times, and then ameliorate its worst social effects. So there's no centralized body. You know, there are boards of health occasionally, but they are, these are always political boards. Um, They are formed after an epidemic generally, and then they disappear by the following summer. And most people, most health officers were not um, medically trained. They're lawyers, they're, you know, they're planters themselves. Yeah, Yeah, it's just ridiculous. It's like a ceremonial position, basically. And 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 they really you know they really you know they had very little medical or statistical training um and you know people you know new orleanians would joke basically that like the you know the board of health they would be as effectual at sort of declaring war on a foreign power as they were at instituting any kind of health reform in new orleans they just didn't um <laughs> and you know as other cities also are increasingly embracing quarantine um to deal not just with yellow fever but all manner of diseases um New Orleans rejects quarantines time and time again. Mm-hmm. There are only four quarantines installed and only very briefly um, in the antebellum period um, in New Orleans. That's very different from other cities. And that's pretty extraordinary. And so you have these doctors here who are politically powerful and they're embracing, you know, they they continue to embrace the increasingly sort of um I, I would most most doctors in America and in Europe were very were increasingly skeptical of this notion that yellow fever was um, miasmatic. Um, they they said basically they embraced anti-contagionism. They they said that um, yellow fever was not spread through human to human contact. Um, therefore, quarantines were useless. And other cities um, showed that actually quarantines did work to stem yellow fever, even if it wasn't sort of contagious in the sort of traditional sense of being, of spreading between human, um, you know, through human to human contact. You know, other cities use quarantine to great effect, but you have this sort of, this political class in New Orleans saying, you know, it doesn't really matter um, if quarantine worked in Genoa or in London or in Paris or in Boston, 
you know, have if a quarantine worked there, that has no bearing on <laughs> how it would work in New Orleans because we're just different and we're special. And you know, so any kind of like public health intervention that works elsewhere, like you know, pish posh, that won't that just won't work here. Mm-hmm. And you have this. This is completely ingrained into the sort of political culture of this place. That's not. It's again. It's not just apathy. It's like active. Um, it's an active repulsion to this. And you know, so this chapter five was actually sort of perhaps it was my favorite chapter to write of the book. This is about mm. sort of disease denialism. And, and it was my favorite to write. And I started writing this before COVID, but I, <laughs> I felt like I had, I, I felt like I had sort of like had this like weird, like, like map of like how this, the discourse was going to go around COVID because of this, yeah. which is that you have, you know, you have, so the, the, the sort of culture in New Orleans becomes to essentially deny that yellow fever is a problem. Yeah. So so they'll say, you know, you'll have people who just the just the year before they're writing home, you know, they're writing home to their moms in Connecticut saying, I'm so scared of yellow fever. You know, I, you know, I don't know what to do. Should I leave or should I maybe should I eat my friend's black vomit um, so I should get sick? Yeah. Um, what should I do, mom? What should I do? I'm so scared. And then the next year after they've survived yellow fever, um, you know, they say basically pish posh. Who, who cares about yellow fever? Um, it's, 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 this is all, you know, all of this sort of basically obsession with yellow fever. This is all a Northern conspiracy. This is all fake news. Um, this, these are abolitionist Northerners who are trying to discredit the South. They're overplaying how big a deal yellow fever is. Trust me, it's not that bad. I've survived it. You know, manly, moral men do. Um, this is really, this is, you know, this is just malicious Northerners seeking to discredit the South. And to, you know, further embarrass us and humiliate us on, you know, the global stage and prove that they, they, you know, that they are better. And it's, you know, it's, it's really extraordinary how the entire ethos of this city becomes, you know, they are, you know, they'll be in the middle of a massive epidemic, you know, in 1853 or 1854, when thousands of people are dying. And you see people who are saying, you know, yellow fevers, you know, what are you talking about, mom? There's yellow fevers not a problem. You know, yes, I know that you read, you know, headlines in the newspaper, you know, but those are New York newspapers. I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't read anything about that down here. Um, and, you know, New York newspapers, you know, they're not going to, of course, report on the truth. You know, that's ridiculous. And they see this, you know, you know, you have, and you have people who I think it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, in, it's wild because, you know, yeah on a person's street, you know, they'll, you know, 10 people have died that day and they'll still be denying that yellow fever is a problem, at least publicly, just because they, you know, they see this as essentially their duty as good Southerners and as good New Orleanians mm-hmm. to defend this disease status quo um, and continue to encourage, you know, lie to people, but continue to encourage people with capital um, to move there and invest it there. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, it, you know, and I think we saw this, I mean, I think about this all the time too, where, you know, I had students who, would say like, you know, well, I drink green juice and I wear yoga pants and I run and I'm, you know, I'm otherwise healthy and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get COVID like, you know, or if, even if I get it, I, you know, it won't affect me adversely. Um, you know, and of course that's not true, but you see that you have a, you know, a 19th century version of that exact spiel, mm-hmm. um, being delivered, you know, by young men, um, to their family far away saying basically like, you know, yes, the other people's, you know, it, Yes, there's a risk there, but trust me, I'm going to be fine. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm not drinking. You know, I'm doing all everything right. And, you know, yes, my friend died, but I'm better than him. And I'll succeed where others have failed. It's just it's uncanny. Yeah. I mean, you talk about these, uh, I think you call them anti-panic salvos. And there's even the, um, you know, assertion that people are like, acclimation is mild. It's easy. It's mild. It's, It's really it's mild yellow fever. It's all good. Or... 
um, saying that death rates are overblown and that yeah. eyewitness accounts of, of grave digging are just anecdotal or that um, really, you know, sort of writing these uh, maybe op-eds or sort of leaflets that like New Orleans has like the best sanitary conditions in the whole country. And <laughs> it's it's the, it's the healthiest city in the history of the world. Yeah, you know, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. And 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 you write that like um, in the same section, you say, quote, the white the white elites of New Orleans, knowing that their fortunes and way of life depended on replacing people, not keeping them alive, mm -hmm. um, got to work on more intensely framing the yellow fever question as being not a matter of science and mortality, but one of politics and loyalty. So this is also kind of like, yeah. as we're seeing, you know, in the 1850s, really kind of grappling with the vast amount of evidence that it is possible to intervene this real moment of solidifying and shoring up the ideology of, of yellow fever mm -hmm. that to really kind of turn away from any evidence that might point to the contrary. And at the same time, though, the, the, this system is incredibly precarious that's been set up. Immunocapitalism yeah. requires like this continual uh, replacement of bodies, as we're saying. And so it yeah. becomes really important to kind of control in a propaganda sense what the proposition remains to the outside world about what it means to come to New Orleans and try to sort of earn your fortune through putting yourself through uh, acclamation. And, and even to the point of sort of, as you're saying, people would try and um, find ways to like acclimate more easily. They would ingest uh, disease fluids from people that were sick around them. There was a whole sort of, I think, clear and obvious anxiety the whole time that you document and show all this textual evidence of that even in all of this health boosterism and disease denialism and, and you know, fuck yellow fever, let's like keep building the economy, <laughs> that there is an anxiety that this is not going to yeah. work forever. And that, that there is a kind of tenuous precarity to this system of immunocapitalism that I think even in some sense, there's there's a and I guess I'm definitely projecting here, but like whatever, fuck it. Yeah. It feels like people are like <laughs> worried that this is not going to actually work out, that this is not true and that there is a kind of suspension of disbelief that is perpetuated and built into both the development of like the industry of physicians and care, the industry of, of yeah. death and of, you know, dealing with death of even the accessories of death, whether that's like, you know, sort of the beginning of development of certain funeral traditions within New Orleans mm -hmm. that I didn't even realize dated to this period specifically, or, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of ways that it became an opportunity to get invested in the business of yellow fever, whether that's providing, you know, headstone carving services or gr digging graves. Um, the entire society becomes completely dependent on this constant flow of dead bodies that yeah. isn't, it's a much more complex, um, completely like interdependent relationship with death than I think a lot of people might be assuming superficially when we talk about like capitalism needing this kind of disposability, um, the kind of creation of this large surplus class within New Orleans, that's a constant, that's a need for a constant class of disposable people, right? This is a kind of, mm -hmm. it's it's really in a system itself, it exposes the the anxiety and precarity of this kind of dynamic, I think. And it, it really doesn't work out forever. 
Totally. And, you know, it's one of the questions that, you know, as I said, that is sort of chewed at me throughout this entire project, which is, you know, why do people keep coming here? Um, you know, if this, if this is such a horrible place to be, if, you know, you're going to die earlier, you're going to die more miserably, et cetera. Why, if you have freedom, like, why would you come here rather than go literally anywhere else? And I, like, my answer for that, I think, sort of ties into what you're saying here, which is that I think about New Orleans um, in the 19th century as kind of like the Silicon Valley of its day. It was the place where every single person, white person that is, white ambitious man, came <laughs> thinking that they would be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And of course, they wouldn't. And, you know, they, they wouldn't, of course, become Mark Zuckerberg. They had a high chance of dying. Um, and then, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, like a lot of these men, they would go on to sort of create a lot of destruction as well, um, you know, if they survived. And I think, you know, this was the place that ambitious white men came. And they always thought that they would be the exception. But you are absolutely correct that this is a sort of insecure system um, that has preconditions. And the big one is that exactly you need people to want to come here or be forced to come here. So you have, you know, so this is, and this is sort of the problem for after the civil war where, um, you know, the the sort of preconditions for amino capitalism, which is that you have this deadly virus, of course, that just bestows immunity upon survivors, but you also have a large influx of um, immigrants coming every year, um, people who will replace the dead. You have a fixed population of enslaved people who have no choice but to be there, who are doing most of the labor of this region. And you also have, you know, because and who are growing these commodities, um, which is in turn making New Orleans this incredibly, you know, basically New Orleans is powerful um, because they have cotton. Um, you know, the, the city has cotton and, you know, so long as they maintain control over the, at least the lion's share of American cotton, it would sort of remain important in perpetuity. But after the Civil War, you see cotton starts to redirect elsewhere. There are other cities like Atlanta and even Chicago um, where cotton is being shipped by rail to these places. Not It's not being shipped much more slowly by steamboat down Mississippi through New Orleans. Um, immigration basically stops to the South um, and to New Orleans after the Civil War. And of course, there's emancipation. So you don't have this like fixed labor laboring population that is required to be there. You have people, you know, many, many Black people after slavery either moved from Louisiana into New Orleans looking for jobs. And many people then moved, thereafter moved to Kansas or to the Middle, the, the middle West, the Midwest um, thereafter seeking to escape coercive sharecropping contracts and also, you know, terroristic violence from the KKK and other white supremacist groups. And you have this, you know, so the, you know, you, you have people in the 1850s, these are white businessmen who are sort of looking down the road and thinking like, huh, the system is not sustainable as it is. It is not sustainable. And it's going to be less and less sustainable, you know, as railroads um, increasingly divert product away from New Orleans, et cetera. You know, there are people, there are boosters who say, you know, this system, as we, you know, as it is, you know, currently constituted, you know, yes, it's made us rich, um, but we need to actually do better with health planning. We need to, we need to think about this as, you know, how are we going to attract people, not just, you know, this summer, but ten years from now, mm-hmm. how are we going to keep attracting people to come here? And there, are people, you see people trying to sort of read the tea leaves about this, but again, there is very little movement on this before the war. During the war, of course, um, Benjamin Butler, who's a union general, he institutes, you know, very strict quarantines in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Um, and there are basically there's no yellow fever in New Orleans um, 
during the war years. Yeah. Which is, which by the way, proves that quarantines do fucking work. Excuse me. Yes. That, that no, quarantines no, swear do away. Work. Swear um, away. That, they do that, fucking you know, work. That, yeah. <laughs> they do fucking, that, that they do work, that sanitation does work, and that actually having a centralized body like the army, for example, or, you know, some, some sort of specialized bureau is an important way to you know, basically stop disease and also, you know, help survivors of it um, and help people who are also, you know, ill with it as well. This all is conveniently forgotten after the war. And you basically have the same exact political class um, from the antebellum period reconstituted in 1866. Mm -hmm. And they just go back to their old ways and say like, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, just because those quarantines work during the war, that doesn't mean anything. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's just go back to normal. And then we see epidemics come back again. It's just like, it's like this complete, it's 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 crazy it's 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 crazy making because you just sort of think like oh my goodness like how can people so obviously deny reality mm-hmm. um like how, and 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 of course the answer to that is it is because it was in their interest to do so yes and you know that is and that is and that is capital in a nutshell of course yes. that we can ignore things you know all around us and that are the glaring inequality all around us because it you know benefits us personally well and I think the other thing too is that very early on the <laughs> I don't even want to call it like a response to yellow fever because it was like a not it's not coordinated or uniform in any way. But like the attitude and the ideology of yellow fever in New Orleans, I think because it's so early on associated with the ways that people are also defending slavery as a practice Mm -hmm. and racial capitalism, you know, the kind of same you you note that a lot of the same like rhetorical interventions are used, but that also, as we've been saying, like there's all along this explicit connection to, you know, not only do we have the right to sort of run a society like this in the face of this disease, but that, you know, this is also part of the kind of like God-given right of white men to dominate over the world. And it kind of, and so, you know, there's a lot wrapped up and at stake, obviously, in the conversation around yellow fever even sort of beyond like uh, sort of governments, administrative state, things like dealing with property claims and things like that. But beyond that, like in the entire ideology of the South and the defense of slavery, for example, this becomes one of the sort of key ways to kind of like show your loyalty as yeah. <laughs> as like a Southerner who upholds, you know, the supremacy of the white race or whatever the fuck their ideology is like the yellow fever beliefs cannot be separated from their beliefs about uh, racial capitalism and the kind of rightness and goodness of slavery that they ascribe to. That's precisely right. And I, I, you know, I sort of take pants with this in the book um, and pro-slavery ideology and sort of defending the disease status quo. They're not the same, but they are rhetorically incredibly similar. And they're, you know, basically like, on this sort of like, they're like yeah. mutually constitutive too. like they support yeah, exactly. and require each other rhetorically throughout this period. Totally. And and they're based, they're both based on, you know, the, the sort of ways that they're argued, you know, it's filled with whataboutism and false equivalencies and bad faith arguments, you know, and this is, and this is precisely right. So that, you know, the, the question that, you know, I, I just taught um, 19th century America to undergraduates. And one of the persistent questions that they always ask me is, you know, why did non-slaveholding whites fight for the Confederacy? Like, what is, mm-hmm. what was their stake in this? And yellow paper is not the answer to this. Like, it, I, I don't, think that it is the only answer, but I think it does actually provide a clue um, because you you see basically, you know, unacclimated people, um, you know, who, for whom it is decidedly against their interest to deny disease and deny the sort of 
the very harsh, very um, risky, very fatal reality. It is against their interest to do so. And they do it anyways, because it becomes a sort of cultural signifier. It aligns them with powerful white enslavers. And it aligns them with a sort of status quo of white supremacy. It aligns them um, with this much larger social force. Um, and so, you know, what you said and did not say about disease very much mirrored what you said and did not say about slavery. It's these are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, and it was a test of your, it was in any ways, it was a test of your loyalty to the South, to New Orleans, to Louisiana, to deny reality. So the more you could sort of subvert what you were, you know, seeing with your own eyes and ear, you know, hearing with your own ears, the more you could do that, and the more that you could, you know, sell that point was, you know, it was that was taken as a sort of that your you know, badge of loyalty to this society um, and to slavery writ large too. Mm -hmm. These things that go, you know, hand in hand, it's really, it's sort of amazing to see how much people, how, how you know, how far people were willing to go um, in, you know, touting a party line that again was decidedly against their interest. These are people who would have benefited from public health, who would have benefited from a less apathetic political class that would have benefited from literally any kind of intervention um, in terms of street cleaning or quarantine. And you have these same people who are, you know, live in terror of yellow fever, at least in private, publicly saying, this is all just a northern conspiracy. This is all fake news. Um, this is all just, you know, you know, this is an abolitionist plot to discredit the South. It's amazing, actually, mm -hmm. how how um, people say one thing and do another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing, too, that that is fascinating towards the end of the book is you talk about when actually some of these centralized health authorities begin to be set up in this uh, 1870s. And yeah. the reaction to them by people really steeped in yellow fever ideology is that this is a radical takeover of, of government and yeah. uh, interference. And, and it mirrors the kind of arguments that you see, like, no, this is about states, right? You know, this is about yeah. autonomy from, from federalism. This is about... Um, uh, escaping the kind of thumb of the northern bureaucrats who don't understand and, you know, aren't hard enough to deal with, like, living in New Orleans. You know, basically, it's kind of this this uh, get tough framework that I think most people would think, you know, when they think of, like, where some of this ideology comes from, they might be thinking of, like, oh, the kind of morality play of, like, the people who are surviving yellow fever are the good people and the people who are bad um, are dying. And this is a kind of culling. Like, people might be like, oh, that's eugenics. And no, that's... Yeah. <laughs> this is... Eugenics is um, the embodiment of an older ideology ideology in a policy language, right? If this is not mm -hmm. a, an ideology about disposability that's unique to eugenics. And in the same way, you have like, I think these moments where you might think this echoes like 1970s, 1980s kind of welfare, um, moral panics, or the kind of ideas about who the state can support and who is a citizen and who is a part of the we and the we the people and who is not a part. And the kind of who deserves to be a citizen question like it's not that any of these things originate in in these debates obviously but these are such powerful embodiments of some of these pieces of rhetoric that i think many people have become maybe first aware of um through their own experience of covid and and i found like mm -hmm. you know the way that you sort of end the book um talking about you know the aftermath of like the what is it the 1870 seven or 1878 yeah. yeah the 1878 epidemic and how this kind of like 
is a turning point, but that you still see this huge resistance, even in the face of sort of such obvious scale of, you know, a <laughs> hundred years mm. of, of this sort of as a as a failure. You have a massive charity infrastructure that's been stood up. You have a massive sort of medical infrastructure and industry that's developed in New Orleans. And this has really become such a part of the way of life. And even still, you have this kind of assertion of like, you know, these quarantines, this is interlopers, this is like radical public health, um, you know, people trying to take over our city. And and it, it, it is kind of scary because it does echo so much of the rhetoric that we, we still see, like, don't count COVID deaths, uh, make sure that we're counting with versus for, with hospitalizations, COVID yeah. is mild, uh, herd immunity, the kind of like immunity debt theories, like all of these kind of ideologies that we've been covering quite closely on this show for the last three years. These these do um, show up in the story of yellow fever that you tell. And part of the reason why I'm kind of trying to bring this in now is that I really want folks to remember the fact that a lot of what we've been experiencing in terms of COVID and the unique sort of um, moments that we've maybe had where people have realized, oh, wow, that that capital and health are intertwined in this toxic, um, parasitic way, right, in the way that we construct valuation in terms of like human life and, and who matters and why is translated through an economic lens. And we really do think of people economically in terms of policy, social structure, interpersonal behavior, public health, you know, whatever, that these are actually things that are not so unique experiences. They're not so specific to our current moment, actually, and that they do represent larger, um, you know, parts of larger dynamics that for a long time we've been contending with in, in very small parts in this country for uh, centuries at this point. Yeah, I just, you know, a, a small thing on that, too. There's a sort of small state fetishism that I think has been echoed. So, uh, you know, it's it's um, it's reverberated a lot during COVID. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I think what we the, the, one of the main things I think that we've really learned, which is that there's no such thing in some sense as like a, vo- a sort of a local public health response to, you know, to a virus like COVID, you know, there's you know, this, you know, if we were in trouble from the very beginning in some sense, because you have, you know, individual cities and states and, you know, developing their own sort of policies and their own cultures around disease. And I, you know, I think back to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, when was that, you know, 7,000 years ago, I, my, my <laughs> entire ability to tell time is, um, you know, gone out the window. But, you know, in the sort of early days of the pandemic, there was this line that was continually touted by, you know, the lieutenant governor of Texas, um, Glenn Beck, um, you know, even Donald Trump himself to this notion that it's essentially, you know, Americans' patriotic duty, duty. to get sick with, yeah, their, their patriotic duty to go out and get sick with COVID, um, develop antibodies and reopen the economy. Mm-hmm. And these were always sort of, there was this like notion of taking on disease risk and sort of, and uh, you know, the sort of economic patriotic act. And these were always entwined from the very beginning. And this happened, you know, this is before the vaccine. And I do think that, it, you know, what was so interesting about this, and I think we, you know, very, very quickly saw this, which is that, you know, rich people, um, people who have desk jobs, um, they could stay home. They could, you know, order whatever they wanted from Amazon and they could wipe down their bags of potato chips and apples with Clorox wipes. And, you know, university professors like me, we switched to Zoom and I was able to, you know, isolate at home. And of course, the vast majority of people have no luxury to do that. Um, right. They did not have the luxury to do that. They were, and these are disproportionately poor people, um, you know, 
people who, you know, non-white people, um, people who aren't, don't have salaried jobs, but instead have wage jobs, and you know, people who don't have the luxury of being able to stay home and, you know, not take on disease risk. And it was always, you know, this notion of, um, you know, who should do the labor and who should take on disease risk was always, you know, racialized, it was always gendered, and it was always class-based. Um, that was that from the very beginning. And of course, I, you know, I, I actually, I really don't think that COVID made our society more unequal. I think it basically just exposed the inequalities mm-hmm. that were already there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it made it sort of showed the seams, if you will, of you know our you know the underpants that is our society or something. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's, it showed that stitching in it. You know, it, it just it, it exacerbated perhaps it exacerbated them too. But it's you know, these were inequalities that existed before the the um, pandemic. And I you know it's it's what's striking to me is you know, yellow fever and COVID are di- there are different diseases. They arose in you know in the United States in different political contexts. But you know so many of this, you know, so much of this kind of like belief in private acclimation, you mm-hmm. know, that you must go out and take on disease risk. It is your responsibility. We heard this, you know, we heard this with COVID and I, I worry that we'll continue to hear it in the future too, because I'm not sure that we've necessarily learned the lessons um, that we should have with um, this latest pandemic. That's still ongoing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the recommendation from the CDC to immunocompromise people is to have a plan for when you get sick. Um, yeah. <laughs> helpful. That's very, that's very helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. You know, like it, it's, it's like, uh, it, 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 it's terrifying in some sense because I think that what COVID has done uniquely, if anything, is that it's a temporal concentration that we're not used to, um, in yeah. terms of like seeing some of these dynamics made more literal, made more obvious in people's everyday lives. And if we're sort of thinking also about, Really, the kind of bottom line for me and the, the the strongest takeaway from your book in terms of thinking through COVID was really the immense power of the predetermined there is nothing to be done um, yeah. framework that that as a kind of a romantic and seductive notion that it's not that that necessarily isn't of itself causal, right, but that within our social and economic and political lives we are essentially sort of under this regime of of capital, which its priority is to kind of move forward because we as individuals, Mm -hmm. while we might have an obligation to make our bodies ready for work to produce surplus value for the economy Mm -hmm. that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, even when we die on the grand ledger in an actuarial sense, this is not bad for the economy. Like death is also part of how the United States builds its wealth and builds the state and that it's important to kind of take these moments that we're experiencing now and locate them within broader dynamics in terms of how we think about health and even what health is more more sort of structurally speaking um, and try to move beyond some of these individual understandings of disease and health because, you know, you could say that you know, each individual was really kind of up against their own disease risk within New Orleans. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, you have incredible conditions that are structural that are going to determine all sorts of experiences of that disease, whether that's, you know, being immunosuppressed from a long boat journey, as I appreciated you pointed out several times, you know, people who are coming in these like recent groups of quote unquote, you know, naive reservoir people who hadn't been exposed to yellow fever in large concentrations long boat journeys like do um, have a detrimental impact on your health, right? Like people are arriving malnourished. 
they're arriving already in a state where they're more vulnerable and then they're existing in a society in which like all things are oriented towards health being a personal responsibility in the face of the fact that they are socially and structurally determined by what's around you. So this kind of larger mythology that our health is something that's ours alone or that we can control, this is like a much bigger and older idea. And so I really, I, I appreciated so much how your book, I think, really puts that in perspective. And particularly in the perspective of like how a society lives through a disease that it doesn't understand. Because I think in terms yeah. of like COVID, the, the kind of unique thing is that, you know, we've become very accustomed to kind of like technocratic um, technological interventions for disease in our in our current moment. And the kind of vaccine only approach to COVID has been, I think, eye opening for so many people um, that we don't actually know everything about medicine. We don't know everything about the body and that even some of our best technological solutions, right, like that vaccines mm. also exist within a social context <laughs> and that our health is this much broader picture where you know you can have vaccine protection and covid can still be a huge problem and these are you know two realities that for a long time in our political economy were were treated as incompatible you know and the power of of even just 2 years of saying no you know the vaccine prevents transmission or something until you yeah. admit that 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 has lasting impacts beyond like that kind of immediate moment and some of these decisions <laughs> that we make these cost benefit analyses that say okay this risk it's worth it it's worth it you know it, it doesn't just have short-term consequences on the economy it has long-term consequences in terms of shaping our society and our our political economy ultimately absolutely and you know it's it's interesting to me you know in in sort of it's, it's amazing to me thinking about um you know we we ended up finding out, you know, I think, I think that COVID was basically like genomically mapped within, you know, within weeks of it being declared pandemic, you know, around the world. It was, it was, you know, we, we knew in some senses a lot about this disease, but also it's, it's striking to me, you know, how much we still don't know. And actually how even still um, there are sort of self-styled COVID experts everywhere. And this, the sort mm -hmm. of the, the notion, the notion that everyone's got to sort of figure out what their, you know, the disease, the level of disease risk that they are comfortable with, um, that, you know, that there was, a, there was a while where everyone was talking about, you know, personal risk assessment. <laughs> Yeah, and as it's if like, that's you know, fucking possible. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, 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 it's a it's a it's a fallacious concept in the first place. Mm -hmm. Exactly, mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's a such under utter bullshit because of course there's you know first of all my personal risk assessment might be very different than yours in the first place, and those that matters that they're different because I can't do it without you. That's the you know that's that's you know, we can't we don't operate in these little bubbles, and it feels so American to me this notion of sort of. It's you know I, I it's not necessarily sort of libertarian is the wrong word but there's a sort of like health libertarianism here to this sort of notion that like you know every everyone's their own island and it's so anti a kind of like notion of society that I embrace in general you know I believe in society I believe that you know that in community in this way and it's just it's this is so antithetical to that notion. Well, I I I totally agree and I feel like in some sense and this is a whole other conversation and we could take hours on this. <laughs> I do feel like, you know, libertarianism is the wrong word and that liberalism in a classic sense is actually what yeah. we're talking about because I just think back to you know, my ba my background is in disability studies. So, you know, if we think back to like conceptualizations of, of citizenship in, in Rawls and mm -hmm. in, in Adam Smith, right? The idea of 
membership in society is predicated on economic participation and on this idea that each person is sort of responsible to bring in value to the nation in order to receive membership in it as such. And there, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a very explicit, you know, passage that I'm thinking of in Rawls where he's like, basically like, you know, intellectually disabled people are not people. And uh, if you can't pay taxes, you're not a person. Um, and and that's a very, I think, Im- important and foundational part of our culture and our political economy and our society that, you know, we, we don't often talk about actually um, how important that is to our entire conceptualization of, of who deserves what and, and what we owe each other more than it even is about yeah. citizenship and membership, because ultimately... Um, I think as you show, like while the idea of of becoming acclimated kind of gives you access to this other society within New Orleans, the the kind of framework itself of immunocapitalism, like it is built on a kind of fundamental disposability of everyone. And that's going to mm. that's going to sort of shape that's going to shape society, whether you're like admitting it or not. And if we sort of have these foundational models that we're working with and we never take a moment to to think about and talk about really what are the kind of values here underlying it and, and what has been carried on throughout history, what legacies of these things do we still live with? Um, you know, it's difficult to to kind of locate it beyond something that happened in the last 30 years, like, or yeah. 50 years, or beyond things like, you know, is it just a kind of, you know, 2020 um, Republican versus Democrat thing when it comes to COVID? Or is this in a larger sense part of the reckoning that we have as a society with like health and what we owe each other fundamentally as human beings who live together? And I I think your book really, you know, we're not talking about the same disease. We're not talking about the same time period. But I think it is a really helpful and powerful lesson of about what like the truth is when it comes to health and how this is something that is really bound up in so many different social pressures and complex dynamics that to say, you know, we know the truth of disease and we know everything there is to know about health and that this person is at risk from this disease for sure for Mm. this reason that when we hear things like that, the first question you should really have is really like, how do you know what you know? Um, Yeah. But this is a beautiful and absolutely so labor intensive, wonderful book that I feel like is also such a great attempt at trying to show what actually happened during these hundred years in New Orleans when risk of disease was a really important social and political tool in constructing society and in shaping the way that, you know, not only people's lives were in terms of brutality and suffering, but in terms of sort of what was acceptable growth and and political intervention and political thought at the time. Well, you know, thank you for the very kind words. I mean, I, I, one of the things that's it's, it's funny because like, you know, I don't, I certainly do not um, recommend writing a book about past epidemics during a global pandemic. I didn't plan for this yeah. um, <laughs> in the slightest, I, you know, but it's, it's one of these things that I think you said earlier, you know, that you, you feel both rage and hope. And I actually think that that's, I, I think it's actually a really like a beautiful way to sort of approach a great many things, but this in particular in the history of inequality and disease and things like this too. And, you know, I, this is the sort of nature of the way that 
um, academic history works is that you know, I've got to have my next book, you know, sort of in in the works as it is right now. And I promised my partner that I would not be writing another book about disease because we just talked. <laughs> you know, there there were you know there were too many nights where like you know we 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 would go from like what's the latest COVID count in New York right now to here's the symptom of yellow fever. And, you know, it's like, you know, it doesn't make for the most sort of charming dinner party conversation. Um, and, but I, so I, I promised, I promised him this, but at the same, I actually think my next book will probably be about syphilis and shame in the Gilded Age. Oh yeah. And ways in which like, yeah, which, which, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of disease to yellow fever. Uh, because you know where you know when people survived yellow fever in New Orleans, they would literally shout it from the rooftops. Like they would just, it was you know they would put it into their autobiographies, they would write memoirs about it. It is the exact opposite with syphilis, where you know nobody wrote, nobody would write anything about it. You didn't tell your wife, you didn't tell your sexual partners, you didn't tell your kids, you didn't tell your doctor. You tried to deny it to yourself if you had it, and it and actually has a very different kind of historical muscle. But I do think that there's sort of this. It, but I, I think there's a sort of interesting kind of underlying motif to syphilis, which I find interesting that it's it's kind of the one of the paradigmatic diseases of the 19th century, a la sort of Susan Sontag. You know, and this epidemic, this, you know, it, this got worse and worse and worse with every decade, um, you know, at the end of the 19th century. And yet people just sort of tried to put it out of sight or they just didn't talk about it. There was no public health response really until the 20th century. Um, doctors didn't talk about it. There were not health boards that talked about it. And it's just this. Um, I, you know, diseases, are, they're, they're, you know, they're all individual and they, ha- they, you know, are time and place specific, but um, I'm delighted that you enjoyed the book. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's always good to hear. Um, it's, it is always like lovely to hear because it is like such a, they are both labors of labors of love. And at times, you know, it's labors of pulling your hair out yeah. um, too, just because that's the way that it goes. Lots but, of time yeah. spent flipping through your handwritten insurance records and letters yeah. saying some of the worst <laughs> shit you've ever read. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. It's <laughs> thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciated all of this, and thank you so much for your book. Thank you so so much. It was absolutely my pleasure to speak with you, and I, you know, best of luck this week and going forward. And I, you know, I love the podcast. So Aww, you're just you. you're you're just fabulous. Aww. Well, thank you so much. Again, Catherine's book is called Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. If you want to follow her on Twitter, she is at Cat Oliverius. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron, support our work, get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, including the entire back catalog at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, Pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. 